Hi, and welcome to AdLib, a new podcast from AdAge that features unscripted interviews with some of the biggest personalities in media and marketing. I'm AdAge editor Brian Breaker, and I'm your host. Today's guest is Jonah Disson, CEO and founder of Red Scout. It's a branding and product development company with clients like Gatorade. Uh, he founded it in 2000 in his New York apartment. Here we talk about how his love of theater informs what he does, how the industry has not especially embraced its LGBT community, and a certain bar mitzvah that he threw his own company when it turned 13. Well, no, that, I mean, that is funny. I did notice uh, we were just pointing out that you are not wearing, in fact, wearing a swatch, which is sort of like, like is it your trademark or your, like you were, you gave them away at, at your birthday party yeah. at Cannes, so. It was a, a one-time only, it was my <laughs> attempt to, to do, you know, viral marketing, which I don't usually do, but. Is, uh, is swatch a client? Uh, they're not. No. No. It just felt like very can to have a white swatch. And, <laughs> um, Rolexes were a little out of my budget. <laughs> uh, what uh, is that? A, is that a brand you'd want to work with? Yeah, I think they're a super interesting brand. They're yeah. they're. I, I mean, I have certain brands like they're a yeah. brand of my childhood. Yeah. Um, Same. I, I like to claim that I bought the first swatch in the U.S., but I think that's completely made up. <laughs> I had the. I had I had lusted after and finally had. I must have been. I don't know, ten or whatever mm. the the little see through one oh, where yeah. you can see the gears. Watch that was the, that I was the coolest one. That one. Yeah, that was good. and it was my Duriger bar mitzvah gift for everybody. Yeah, uh, at your actual bar mitzvah, or I, I didn't have uh, no when I would go to bar mitzvahs because oh. I didn't actually have a bar mitzvah. Yeah. But later, yeah. okay, well let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about this. You did have a bar mitzvah. You um, when uh, Red Scout turned thirteen, you threw yourself or you threw the. Do you call it an agency? Yeah, it's a good question. We. We some people call us a studio. Some guys yeah. call us a an agent. I guess a shop. Yeah. Um, we shop. don't really call ourselves. We probably avoid agency. But you, um, but you threw the shop a bar mitzvah. We used to, we did uh, when you turned thirteen. And talk about that. What what was the was that was that a, is that just a gimmick? Is that marketing for yourself? Is it a celebrate all, all the above? Yeah. So I think that. One, because as a child, I did not have a bar mitzvah. I was quite envious of all my friends who did. I felt like um, my parents are a little hippie, and yeah. so they just didn't really believe in, in that kind of thing. So I ended up uh, figuring, oh, I'll do it for Red Scout, and felt sort of a good a good point in our development to do something kooky, and it felt very on-brand for us to mm -hmm. sort of... Um, we had yarmulkes made with our logo, and, and sort of... Or so it was also in a seminary, so it was a little ironic. Mm -hmm. um, and then it happened to be that um, that the New Yorker wrote about it, so that we didn't actually do it for press. It became something that became right. more of a of a thing. But um, it, it's sort of something sort of signature in our history, and people who were sort of there felt very much part of our. Was it a was it a coming of age moment? Were you guys? Did you become a man? Did, <laughs> did the shop become a man? I do feel like it was right around the time we became more of a grown up organization. Yeah. I do think it is. Interesting in a life stage that it's kind of an adolescent period. You know, it's, I think there's been such an acceleration for companies that companies are growing up so fast, but now often they're realizing they're huge and still have no, haven't actually done some of the fundamentals. And I think it was a moment where we started kind of getting more grown up and getting the fundamentals. So let's let's talk about it. You, you, that was four, four years ago. Yeah, four years so, ago. So you, Red Scout's been around since 2000. You don't describe yourself as an agency. You were an ad age agency of the year, whether or not you're an agency. Yeah. You're more into what is it, is this a f accurate um, description? Trend watching, product design, brand consulting, brand building, more so than advertising. 
Yeah, we really, uh, we, you know, our whole thing is that innovation is your most powerful form of marketing. So we, we really believe in how do brands, companies, I think more and more it's companies than just brands because people sort of look at the company. Um, how do you behave differently, do different things, make different products or services, and then use marketing to amplify, mm-hmm. as opposed to what I think a lot of it was, let's just yell about what we're doing and hope that somebody is interested. And so we sort of fundamentally believe, like, let's make interesting things, do interesting things with our clients. Can and you, then, can you give a, like a specific case study that sort of is the perfect microcosm or encapsulation of what Red Sky does? Sure. Um, I think a couple of sort of our greatest hits we talk about is, you know, early on working with Crispin on Domino's and mm-hmm. saying, like, actually fix the pizza and fixing the pizza and then marketing the change of the pizza. And it really, did, you know, credit to them, did it in a very in, an amazing way um, and really interesting way. But I think how do you, or Gatorade creating a G, the G series, how do you actually, rather than trying to convince consumers that you're different, actually be different, do something different, innovate, and then the marketing goes so much further. How do you convince the brand to do it? I would imagine that a big brand like Gatorade or Domino's would be, I mean, Domino's maybe had to change because they were in some kind of trouble, right? Um, How do you, you must have had brands that are like, that's too much. Yeah, I mean, it definitely helps when a brand is, is struggling. I think right now, even brands that are successful, the marketplace is so crazy. And, you know, I talk a lot about like, most of our clients are making pants and people are buying shorts mm-hmm. and they're freaking out. So they go, do I make three quarter length pants, which no one really wants and no one looks good in? Or do I try to make shorts, but I don't really know how to make shorts? Or do I try to make pants cool again? Mm-hmm. So I mean, I think when you ask what we do, I think that's what we do. We are in the sort of business of figuring out, do you make pants cool again? Do you make shorts or do you try to do something completely different? Right, <laughs> I like that. Um, so, all right. So that was thir- you were thirteen. You had your your bar mitzvah. Now it's seven, you're seventeen years in. Uh, what is different now? I mean, that's the world was a different place in two thousand. Yes. And how did you? How how is it? How is it different? And then we can talk about how you got into this in the first place because you're you were young. Yeah. When it started, how old? <laughs> yeah. Not uh, anymore. My, oh, yeah. I was like twenty six, twenty seven. Twenty seven. I yeah. So I left. I'll give you just a little back. So I. Um, was a planning director at DDB. Mm-hmm. So that was my last job in the advertising world on Madison Avenue. Um, and then I I was constantly frustrated because by the time I would get, um, they would say, okay, now you need to write a creative brief mm-hmm. on something. But the product had been completely done and it was sort of like going to market and we had to figure out how to put some kind of spin on it. And I just started spending nights with um, and weekends with R&D. Um, at the time, my client way back then was Johnson & Johnson, who I loved. And um, they, and just were like, what if we made really interesting products? What if we better understood trends? We better understood consumer needs? We better understood real insights? And then created products around that. And then the marketing, the brief's sort of already written. And we don't actually have to then come up with a creative brief on top of it. We just need to tell the story in a creative, interesting way. Um, and then realize that there wasn't really anyone doing that. You know, way back when it was really IDEO owned the market and innovation. Um, so when I started, the challenge was convincing CMOs or others um, to who didn't. Most companies didn't even really have innovation departments to spend marketing budget on new product development. Um, and then the market shifted, and it was new products and innovation that was driving most of the growth. So we were sort of a little bit. Um, I was a little lucky, I think a little bit of the right place, right time, but the first few years was just kind of pounding the pavement, trying to convince people um, 
you know, are doing jobs for basically nothing just to get in the door. What was the first moment where you realized, like, oh, this is a this is a viable concern now? Um, yeah, I think when we started to um, sort of early on working with with some of the big, particularly the big CPG companies who were starting to see health and wellness, like some of the big macro trends that were really impacting people's business, which now we've seen how that's played out, um, or where there were just starting to be some of these newer competitors coming in that were interesting and disrupting the marketplace. And I think that really helped us catapult because they're trying to go, okay, there's this Red Bull thing. What do we do now? How do we play in that space? So um, I think that really helped us um, kind of kickstart and and sort of help uh, demonstrate that there was a real need for it. And now a lot of people are doing it. So how do you compete? Or how do you stay relevant? Yeah, I mean, I am a big fan of competition because I think just, you know, it's like we'd say with our clients, the pie just gets bigger and then mm-hmm. it's, you know, a little bit of a, a market share game. Candidly, most of our business is referrals. Mm-hmm. So we tend to just, we, a lot of our clients we've worked with five, four or five and they travel. I mean, actually the CMO trend um, turnover has actually been really good for our business. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, for some others, it's not. Right. It's easier to bring us in than an agency of record. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of go and um, travel with our clients where they know it's not such a huge deal to switch. Why, why is the CMO trend good for you? Because I, I would imagine if there's a turnover, maybe the new CMO was like, well, who are these Red Scout people <laughs> that we're working with? Why is, why is this happening? Um, no, that's fair. I think we well we tend to follow our CMOs, so when they go, we will go with them. Ah. So that's where it's good for us. Mm. I think what's important, and I think this is sort of my um, my free advice for all agencies, is that I think that agencies tend to stay in the marketing. So they they, they maybe work with the CMO, but really they're working with a lot of the directors of advertising or marketing or whomever, and they don't build relationships with HR with. R&D, with finance, with legal, because of what we do, we, you know, I always I used to joke that we would measure our success by how many holiday cards we sent out to individual clients. And in one year, we sent out like 200 holiday cards to Pepsi. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we work across every different division within these organizations and build real relationships. And that way, when a CMO goes, we stay and then we go, we go with them, but we also stay where we were because mm-hmm. we've built really, we have a lot of relationships we've had for, you know, 14, 15 of our 17 years. Well. Um, what, um, how did you get into this then? So you were, you mentioned to me for, I guess, before we were rolling, you were, uh, you were into theater. Uh, how does a theater geek get into into (laughs) it? I didn't say geek. I just said theater. (laughs) 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 No, but I, so yes, I, my entire life I was obsessed with theater and I went to college and studied, it was Shakespeare. Yeah. What's your Uh, favorite play? Um, Hamlet, which I'm going to, there's one at the public that's supposed yeah. to be amazing. So what's to what's your favorite role? In, is it Hamlet? Yeah, so I, um, when I was in third grade, and now I sound, now I do sound like a geek, but <laughs> me, I, my um, parents had bought me this leather when I was eight, a leather bound uh, edition of all the Shakespeare plays, and I probably didn't understand half of it. So I ambitiously tried, and one of my friends, his name was Kenny, and his mother was at the time, I guess they called him, but he was an executive assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, and she sort of transcribed it for us into more third grade English. Mm-hmm. And so we got like mimeograph versions, I'm dating myself, but like mm-hmm. or Xerox copies of them. And I, it was quite controversial in third grade, tried to produce um, <laughs> a production of Hamlet. Yeah. And I thought I was so edgy because we had 
the one Korean girl in our class um, as Hamlet in yeah. a cross, and I played the ghost of Hamlet's father uh-huh. um, in a sort of Hitchcock moment. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then about four weeks in, I was really excited because the kids all gave up recess to go rehearse, and we were having fun. And then the school shut it down because a little inappropriate. <laughs> oh, no. So uh, my, I feel like my entire life in the theater has been trying to uh, do things where people didn't want me to. Well, you were rebranding Hamlet. Yeah, like exactly. Were, like, it would have been a huge, a huge thing. <laughs> but then, yeah, college theater. I moved to New York. I went to grad school at Tisch. Yep. Um, but in a, more of a theory program, and it was called performance studies. And so I was really looking at identity through the lens of performance. So how do we perform as a, a man, as a woman, as whomever, as a Jew, as whatever, mm-hmm. thinking of that identity as performance. And that... Does that really, inform your work? Absolutely, 100%. And that's, yeah. I think, where I... It sort of opened up a new lens for me of, of sort of seeing the world and sort of thinking of brand as performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I graduated from um, grad school and couldn't make a living, um, mm-hmm. I was writing for a theater magazine and doing other things, but making about $12 an hour. And um, they... People, somebody, I, I was at a temp job at a at agency that's no longer around called Warwick Baker O'Neill, mm-hmm. and there are all these fun agencies that don't exist anymore. And um, somebody's like, "You're a planner, go be a planner." And I had no <laughs> idea what that was, but I went to San Francisco because that's where a plan at the time it was good be. It was sort of the height of. I'm um, sort of, I'd say, second-generation planning. So we had all these sort of legendary planners who'd come over from England, and now we were the first like generation who didn't have British accents, mm-hmm. and trying to come out and prove that we could be, you know, planners. But no one would hire me. Um, I could not get a job to save my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, I got a job in account management, and then sort of like worked my way into planning. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was sort of so it was completely by accident. Right. Well, I think yeah. the best things happen by accident. I got mm-hmm. into my career by accident um what uh uh what's different today than than when you were trying to to get in and then what advice would you give to someone who wanted to be the next red scout (laughs) or take us down um (laughs) i mean i think the thing that has not that that sort of makes me sad is that it was always in the early days about insights Mm -hmm. and i feel like we've gone to a point where we're like subsumed in data, but we're so data rich, but insight poor. And we forget that really at the end of the day, it's about insights. And I think that's a dying art. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do that sort of my advice is that I think we don't, I don't think people know what an insight is anymore. And I have this sort of simple theory that if you, if I tell you an insight, you will either feel something in your, if it's an insight, you will feel it. Like mm-hmm. physiologically, you will feel it. And mm-hmm. if it's not an insight, you won't feel it. And we just, we're, we're sort of, we're giving, I actually I teach a course on sort of how do you tell the difference between a data point and an insight. Yeah, so give me an insight. I'll give you an insight. Um, so early, way back when, we'll talk about energy. I was sitting in the back room of focus group and listening to a woman talking about how she doesn't read anymore. And the moderator was kind of kept pushing and going, why don't you read? You don't have enough time. You don't have enough time. And she said, um, no, she couldn't of articulated and ultimately she's kind of got frustrated with him and just like I just don't have the energy and it was this moment where everything was about convenience and everyone was innovating and creating you know don't make you know we don't need to chop your own lettuce anymore we're gonna give it to you in a bag and lots of things like that that were coming out and people realizing that convenience you know we were in a time we had a time famine but then you look at data points of how much at that time like media consumption people had and you're mm-hmm. saying people have plenty of time mm-hmm. they just don't have the energy to utilize the time effectively mm-hmm. and so we were actually in the midst of an energy famine not a time famine mm-hmm. and then so if you're in an energy famine that sort of was the birth of kind of the energy drink phenomenon and saying we're actually are in a um 
you know, I did I did something where I, I lived with eight different families around the country. I, what, what, what is that? You, yeah, so I, <laughs> so sort of the anthropology. So I was I was trying to understand how parents in very different environments, what their relationship with kids and education and media was. So I lived with, went to an army base, homeschooling, an African-American Baptist family in Oakland, um, a hipster New York City designy family, um, sort of a, a very religious family in, in Texas. So I just went to lots of different well, can, environments. Can you, can you roll, <laughs> go backward a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, so what, what was the genesis of this and, and what, how, how long was it? And you sort of picked families at random and said, I want to live with you to learn what? Yeah, so it was for a large um, media company, mm-hmm. a kids media company. Mm-hmm. And um, they and were trying to understand um, how, particularly around education, what was the, what was the, how did parents think about education today and what was the role in media? Because it was for an educational kids um, media company. And how is that shifting and how is that different and what could we, were there, what, what could we pull out from that? And, and so I, I felt like the only way to do that, and I really do believe in, you actually have to sort of live it and experience it and be there. I mean, it comes out as part of my, my grad school training of just, you have to observe it with your own eye, you have to feel it. And so I went and I spent a full day Friday and a full day Saturday with, so it was over like almost eight weeks um, with these families. And I recruited mostly through friends of friends. I tried to kind of, because I was trying to cast, I was trying to find the right, um, Everything's a theater metaphor with me. You'll see that, but try to cast families that were very different, at least on the surface, and to understand how they, what did they do in their homes around education? How did they reinforce it? What were their anxieties? Um, and one of the things that you could only really tell if you went was there was an incredible distance, like a a um, what I call kid-directed families versus parent-directed families. Mm-hmm. So kid-directed families were families where you'd walk in, where the parent would come, first of all, there'd be stuff everywhere. You'd mm-hmm. clearly know they had kids. There was no, the TV was usually on all the time. Um, and the parents would acknowledge each other through the kids. They had, you could see they almost had no adult relationship. Everything was sort of channeled through the children. Mm-hmm to a very sort of extreme designy New York City family where you wouldn't know they had kids, everything had a place, everything was, and they were definitely, you'd, you'd acknowledge your spouse before your, like your children were children and the adults were adults and there was a real separation and they typically were less television permissive. They were much more strict about the, and sort of and then everything in between and trying to really look at how that sort of landscape was shifting. So what, what did that, where did you land? What did that, what was the result or the, end products. Yeah, so one of the, the results was that there was actually a gap in um, preschool curriculum that parents had huge anxiety that the way that their kids were learning or not learning, um, that they didn't even know, like that, the, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of, they were out of touch with that and were not feeling that their kids were very prepared or well prepared going into sort of life and that we had to actually use media to supplement preschool curriculum. You yourself have kids? No kids. So was that uh, a challenge, or do you think you were able to see it with fresher eyes? <laughs> I am a believer that you don't have to. I work on a lot of pro- projects for um, groups that I don't, that I am not. But I think you have to have deep empathy, and you have to. And I do think. I mean, I always think of myself as a bit of an outsider, an outsider in this industry, an outsider in the world, an outsider. And and I do feel like through with outsider eyes, you th- see things more clearly often. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you feel like an outsider? 
I think, you know, I think still being a gay guy in this industry is actually still quite, I think we've come a long way, but not that far. Really? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about women on the outside, which I totally see, and I mm -hmm. see it every day, but I think that we probably don't talk as much about um, sort of being gay in this industry as a whole. I, you know, and I'm not, I'm not super political, so I'm probably never going to be the champion of that or go out and, and speak about it. I have a huge amount of respect for people who do, like the Cindy Gallops of the world, but I just, probably not the way I'm wired, but I definitely see, you see these, you see it a lot. What, so how does that manifest? I think it's just, you know, it's still, there's still a lot, I think we're at least a generation away. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just talking to somebody, just the way that people engage is still very um, gendered or still, I mean, still a lot of our clients are straight white men, mm -hmm. um, which is fine. Um, you know, some of my best friends are straight <laughs> white men. <laughs> um, and I think that there's, but so you just take it for granted. It's like, oh, you know, you're gonna bring your wife. It's like, oh, I don't have a wife. Or uh, and then it's assumed that you're single. It's like, no, 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 yeah. it's single. I just yeah. don't have a wife. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's still just these little things that come up or just ways of, you know, there's still a lot of like golf and scotch drinking. I right. mean, there's still some very, that are not necessarily friendly places for women or for other folks. Right. Interesting. Has that affected, do you think, the, any opportunities you may have had? Or is you've seemed pretty successful? I just think it's, yeah, I think it, it hasn't in so much as, but I think it, it's made me probably fight harder to be yeah. successful. And I think that it has made me, and I'm still on a path, but to try to be more myself. I think when I was working at DDB, I'd wear a suit to work every day. I tried really hard to not be myself, like to be, to play the game. I think the most liberating thing of starting my own company and why I kind of had to start my own company was I needed to build a company around who I was and sort of work on that process of being more myself. I think that's, that's something that comes up a lot in some of the people that I've been talking to lately uh, is that once you figure out who you are, who you're about and lean into that, you're oddly more successful that way than trying to be the thing that... that yeah you know, you assume you're supposed to be. Well, but there's so much pressure and so much anxiety. And I always say, people say, well, why is there so much CMO turnover? And I said, the only way to not get fired is to not care if you get fired. Yeah. And if you care if you get fired, which most people do, they are not successful because they start trying to, um, trying to. You're making decisions out of fear. Yeah, you're making decisions out of fear or you're trying to please your boss. Mm -hmm. And as a CEO myself, like you'll never, like that game will never work because you will never please a CEO or a founder because you stop thinking because you start just going, okay, Brian, I want to make you happy. And so I'm going to imagine and guess what you, and most CEOs I know change their mind too. So maybe last week you told me that you wanted it to be blue. And then I come in and I say, here it is, Brian, it's blue. And you go, but why is it blue? And I don't even know why it's blue anymore because I was only doing it because I thought you wanted it to be blue. And I see that all the time. So how, what, how do you, how does this play out with your own staff? What do you look for when you hire someone or when you promote someone? Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that, you know, we, we just had a promotion cycle and um, we didn't, we were, we were quite um, tough this cycle and people were a little bit surprised by it. But I think, um, I think you, have, you have a reputation of being a tough leader. <laughs> I mean, I've, yeah, I've heard. Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my whole goal is I, I you know, I, I would say we, I will never ever compromise in the work. Like I always say, I don't care if the client likes it. It's, if it's not good, it's not good. Like mm -hmm. actually our work should be, and if it's amazing, if we think it's amazing and the client doesn't like it, I don't care. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I will always back up the team if I think the work is good. And yes, there's a lot of subjectivity in that, but I feel like my goal is to be really, really tough on the work, but not tough on the people. Mm -hmm. And I think what's hard is when it feels personal and I try to not keep it personal. Mm -hmm. I think some people can't separate it. I think people who are successful at Red Scout are able to separate the work from the personal and be able to, and who really want to grow. And I think the, you know, we just said the people got promoted. The cycle were the people that really open to growing mm -hmm. and we're growing. And I think that's something that for me, I think people, you know, we have people who the thing I'm probably most proud of are the people that kind of started as a temp and have been here seven, eight years or who have grown to are doing things they didn't think they could even do or didn't know that it was even possible because it was also accidental. They didn't plan to come into this business just like me. And they mm -hmm. have then found something where they can find a different side of themselves or. How do you keep growing? Um, it's a question. I think the challenges are getting harder, actually. Mm -hmm. I think that we are being hired to do things that I don't know that, that are fixable mm -hmm. or solvable. Um, and so there's an intensity of the projects that I'm actually, I mean, I just, so the other day, I'm more exhilarated than I've been in a very long time. I've, like, I'm finding it kind of thrilling right now. So that's keeping me engaged and energized because the challenges are are meaty. Can you talk about a challenge that you were unable to meet, or <laughs> uh, Red Scout failure, or a personal failure? Yeah, I think that um, w when we will have been successful, um, I fought really, really hard to be successful and and made some enemies along the way. And I think that I have become more fearful of making enemies. Mm -hmm. And I think that I have become less successful in some cases at selling ideas through an organization because of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to be willing to piss people off. Uh, you need to be willing to piss people off. You cannot, um, and the people that I admire the most, I mean, to that point of people who don't get, I don't know if you know Sarah Rob O'Hagan, who's one of my heroes, and we work together on Gatorade, and she just, she's so 100% herself, and she, and I learned a lot from her of just, and she wrote this book about it, like, just, you have to be willing to, to, to make, you know, to fail, you need to be willing to put yourself out there, and then, and I think that it's hugely important, and I sometimes forget it because I'm, maybe, I don't know if I've gotten softer or if I've gotten, or I'm trying not to burn bridges or I don't have as much fight in me, I don't know. But I, I think that it's something that I have realized and that my team maybe isn't going to pick up the mantle. Like I need to probably get back to um, to, to really fighting for what what I think is right. Mm -hmm. And that, But it's tough, it pisses off a lot of people. What's, what's the, you, you used the word path earlier. How, mm -hmm. what is the path from here? So, <laughs> what is it? Yeah, um, you know, I am hoping to get out of being in this sort of day to day and be more in a mentor coach. I think the thing that I yeah. didn't expect to love so much, even if I'm perceived to be quite tough, yeah. is I love working with the team. I yeah. do love, and I would love to be in a place where I could be lighter touch, but really help train people. I really sort of teach the teachers, uh -huh. if you will. And and some of that might even be on the client side too. How do I help client organizations um, relieve some of their anxiety? I mean, we get called the brand shrinks a lot. I think a lot of what I do is actually, I feel like I maybe should get a PhD in psychology. I, <laughs> I feel like I do a lot of therapy uh -huh. for individuals and for companies. Was there a brand that you were like, no thanks, <laughs> if they came to you? Um, yeah, we, we've you know we've turned down something. We turned down a lot of things. Um, we turned down something last year because of 
political affiliations. Uh, um, I won't tell you who it is, uh, but I, you can guess who it is. Okay. Um, and and it was I got a standing ovation from my team when we announced it. It was a very cool brand. We we were dying to work on it until we made a decision that we didn't think we were probably aligned. Right. That's interesting. Who's it? Do you have a dream brand? Like if you if they were listening right now, you'd say I want to work with you. Well, well and it's interesting because I think. Well, we got to work with one of our dream brand, one of my personal dreams, which was Design Within Reach last year, which I love. And Herman Miller, I, I'm a furniture geek, so that was awesome. But um, for me, it's actually often the dream brands or the brands that people love are the brands that you don't actually enjoy working with um, because either they treat you more like vendors um, or they – and sometimes you're like, you got this. Like, I mean, like Tesla's a dream brand, but they kind of know what they're doing. Like, I don't know that they need our help, honestly. Like, I'd love to work with them. I saw the article you wrote. Like, they're not spending on marketing because they're just doing amazing things. Like, they're a dream brand, but I don't know that they need us. I love real, like, mass. I like working on brands that impact lots of people. Um, I mean, it's fun to work on, on the cool brands. There's certain categories I love. I love hospitality. I love things where we can make real impact because we can impact immediately. Like you can go to a hotel and it will feel very different because of something that we've created or even entertainment. We can, they can change up the, 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 the network very quickly. Um, so I think things where we can have a great impact on how they show up in the world fairly quickly. How's working with MDC? Um, I, I, I personally love MDC. Um, Did that change your organization at all or? Our organization's fairly, I say, I mean, I, what I will say, so I'll give you sort of the, the history of, it was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think what happened first for me was that I got, I'm a l- little bit of a pleaser, a rule follower, and I got very, very hung up on making numbers, and I stopped focusing on what actually drove our business in the first place, mm-hmm. and I think it was the first time that I actually didn't do well, mm-hmm. um, or as well. This was about 10 years ago. Um, it was the only time, and then it was the only time that we, in our 17 year history, had to have layoffs mm-hmm. um, for financial reasons, or well, always for financial reasons. But, mm-hmm. and which was really tough on me because I'd sort of prided myself on being able, like, to support people, and I was motivated by making payroll every two weeks. That was sort of my motivator, mm-hmm. not because I, you know, just because I wanted to take care of people, not because I needed to please the parent company. And I think I got lost a bit in it and then I had a moment where I'm like look next year I need to just let me play my game and they listened mm-hmm. and to their credit and the whole business and it really reshaped our business and we've been much more successful when I when we play our game and then the numbers come versus trying to hit the numbers and, and MDC came in when they took a, oh, a, con, a controlling stake is that yeah, right? controlling yeah 60 percent yes when was that that was yes we're just coming up on the end of 10 years okay so the end of this year will be so, ten years. So that was an, uh, the initial transition was rocky, I guess. Or yeah, and, and not necessarily because of them, but more because of me. Because of how you were. Yeah, I mean, I just never. I, you know, you just don't. You don't think about. I mean, when you're independent, mm-hmm. yeah. You, again, you think about making payroll. You don't think about margins. I didn't mm-hmm. care about mar. I was like, if I have enough money to pay everybody. Woo, and have a holiday party, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> rock and roll. Yeah. You know, or just. So it was. It, it, there were certain things that were liberating because you don't worry about cash loans quite the same way. You're not like harassing your clients. Going, Can you please pay us? Please, we need the money. Um, but so that was sort of liberating. But on the flip side, you do you get you kind of I lost my way a little bit in it. Um, it was a lot earlier than I had planned. I built the company to sell it. I knew that I wanted to sell it. I paid myself nothing for quite a long time. Yeah. I, moved, I had a roommate for the first time in a long time. I mean, I did the kind of classic like. You know, I lived in Fort Greene before it was cool. And, um, and the, you literally ran it out of your apartment at first. Yeah, right? I started, I ran it out of my apartment. And then I, um, we were in Chelsea Market, was our first real office. Mm-hmm. 
I remember we pitched a, a piece of business. They were like, we want to come to your office. And I'm like, well. <laughs> um, they're like, no, 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 we really want to come to your office. So I like staged my apartment to look. And they're like, just ring the doorbell and we'll let you in. It was like a walk up. I came in and this is really nice. I'm like, yeah, well. <laughs> we want it. So the rest of it's, you know, so it's all right. But. <laughs> and that's it for this edition of AdLib. I'm Brian Breaker, editor of AdAge. And we encourage you to come back next week. Give us another listen. Subscribe to us on iTunes and tell a friend. <laughs> <laughs>